In Hebrews chapter 3, I want to begin by <clears throat> looking with verse 1 back through the text so that we receive it in the proper context. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Let us pray. O wonderful God of heaven and earth, Lord, we come before you. Lord, on this day to, to worship to exalt, to praise, Lord, and to pray. And as we do, Lord, we just praise your name for, for who you are, for your marvelous works, Lord, uh, from heaven to earth. Lord, all the, the mighty mysteries uh, that science can't explain, God, that only divine power and divine wisdom uh, could originate, Lord, creation, God's salvation for man. It must be of Jesus Christ. Lord, if He alone is Creator, He alone is Savior, we come to worship Him, God. We come to thank You for sending Him, Lord, for placing Him, appointing Him as the Savior of all men. Lord, we thank You that He is one who is perfect, one who is without spot or blemish, that He is the perfect sacrificial lamb, the propitiation, God. And we just pray this morning that you would allow us in your word to see this Christ, the Christ who is God and the Christ who is man, for that is the very definition of a Savior. Lord, he alone fits the bill, and we just ask that you would reveal him to us, God, in a powerful way that, uh, that we would submit to his lordship, or that we would... Submit to his will, Lord, and to his commands. That we will follow him, Lord, with our crosses daily. Uh, that we would bring honor and glory to your name, Lord, and that you would be given the credit for every good thing that has happened, Lord, and credit for all of uh, your work on earth until your kingdom, Lord, is filled with your people. Lord, we just thank you. Uh, for the salvation that we have in Christ. We thank you for remission of sins, Lord. We thank you for justification and righteousness in Christ alone. Lord, just ask that you would uh, fill us with your spirit this day, that you would testify to us these truths, Lord, and that we would leave here changed and looking more like Christ and looking more for Christ uh, for the sake of his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we look at verse 9 today. It says, Where 
your fathers tried me by testing me. It's a very short phrase. But what we realize is that this phrase is indeed a continuation from the phrase that we saw last week that was also taken from the same chapter in the Psalms. It's chapter 95. And what we see, it says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me. And they saw my works for 40 years. This is a direct quote. And there is indeed no doubt why it is taken from this passage and given in the Hebrews because John the Apostle said it. He's talking about the Christ who is able to save who is the only one able to save, who is the only one who has provided salvation. And he's telling of all these things that in his name you would have eternal life, that believing upon him you shall be saved. And as we consider that, we see that Christ himself in the book of John is quoted as saying, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. And here in Hebrews, what we have is just that. And it's a wonderful picture because sometimes we have text in the New Testament that doesn't directly quote Old Testament scripture. And people have a hard time and and so they should because the natural man receiveth not these spiritual wisdoms that come from the word of God, but they have a hard time understanding how Christ is shown in the Old Testament. But what we have here is a picture uh, making relevant the New Testament passage that is exactly the same as the Old Testament. Therefore, if it is testifying of Christ in Hebrews chapter 3, it must be testifying of Jesus in Psalm 95. And so we ask, how do we see Christ in this? And what we do is we begin with the the very simplest of terms. We, We usually start with this book and look in Psalm and look in Hebrews chapter uh, 3 and see this verse and we see that the intention must be the same because the phrase is exactly the same and we take it word by word. And I will submit to you that what we see in Psalm 95 is uh, for an outline, two things. First, we see the praise of God. And I think that's very important because as the people of God, uh, and not to say that you do it wrong if you don't pray this way or if you don't, if you don't think of these things, but anytime that I'm praying, uh, I, I first like to be reminded to praise God for who He is, to praise God for what He does, uh, and He knows our hearts. He knows that we're coming because we need something, because we, we are a needy people and we need things spiritually, we need things physically and temporally, but what I like to do is first remind myself that I know who God is and then remind God that, yes, I do know who you are and I praise you for who you are. And so with the psalm, we see that that model, that picture coming from the psalm. First is the praise, and we'll read it uh, later. First is the praise, and then we get to the, the part of the text that is quoted today, and that is the warning. The warning of, uh, of the Scripture is against unbelief. The warning of Scripture, let me remind you, is not simply 
beware of sin. It is not simply beware of hell. It is not simply beware of torment and trial. The truth is that we must first beware of unbelief. Because if we do not believe, certainly sin will come. Certainly trial will come. Certainly temptation will come. And certainly failure will come. And then everlasting torment and destruction in hell will come. And so when we look, we're often captivated by those things that are really the byproduct of unbelief. And we're scared of those things that are the byproduct. But what we must fear is the one who is being praised. And so as we look at that, we see the model is to praise first because here is the one whom we do believe in. And then we see the warning against unbelief. And that is what verses 7 through 9 are speaking about. The warning against unbelief. Now, again, for us to see that in Psalm 95 also must mean that we're able to see that in the Hebrews. Well, if it's too hard, we'll look back and we'll see first the praise and then the warning. How does Hebrews chapter 1 start? God spoke long ago to the prophets in many portions and in many ways. It's in these last days spoken to us in His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. And then it goes on to tell us how wonderful this Jesus Christ is. Heir of all things, who created the world, the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His nature, the representation thereof. It upholds he upholds all things by the word of His power. He makes purification for sins. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if we just stop right here, there's enough reason to praise Christ. To praise God for placing Christ. Appointing Him to such a position. And so there we have the same model from uh, chapter 95 in Psalm. First, praise. Aren't those things worthy to be praised? He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. When he's talking about angels in correlation with Christ and how he is so much better. He is worthy of worship. It says they worship him. There is the praise. And then we get to chapter 2. And here is the, uh, the other side, so to speak, of the meat. Because both sides are meat. I think in one sense we have the light meat and here in chapter 2 and 3 we got the dark meat. The dark meat saying, do not neglect salvation in Christ. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Praise, warning against unbelief. And then if that wasn't enough in chapter 2, then we get to chapter 3 and we see how it's talking about Moses and how it's talking about Christ. And it says what? Therefore, brethren, holy brethren, partakers of this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And then it goes back in the warning to remind us of how worthy Jesus is of praise. It says, be careful. Holy brethren, partakers of this heavenly calling, consider Jesus, this name given to an earthly man, a man born of flesh, this apostle, one who is a, the called of God, here still speaking of a man, this high priest, the one who serves in this position as the priest before him, but to a, a, a greater degree, the man, the, the apostle, high priest, Jesus, and then it goes on to say he is the Jesus of our confession, and then later we see that he is the Christ, the builder of all things. The warning is to remember this Jesus, 
this Jesus who is worthy of worship, worthy of praise. And here's where we have this warning against unbelief. Unbelief is very dangerous. It's damning. Unbelief is what sends us to hell. Whether we say that we believe or not, that really is not the issue. The issue is do what, does what we say line up with what we do? Do our actions line up with our heart or is our heart testifying against us? That in fact we say that we believe, but we do not. And I believe the text is very clear. Look at the first word, where. Where your fathers tried me by testing me. Notice that word there, where. This is a very interesting choice of words. I believe that the word where here, of course, is speaking to where these people hardened their hearts. Excuse me, super dry today. Where is this wilderness? This wilderness of trial, the wilderness that the, the Israel, the, the people of God are in, and subsequently they are in this wilderness after they have been delivered from Egypt. And notice that this where, as it's speaking about the wilderness, is also talking about this very same wilderness in which these people are being provided for. It's very interesting what Pat this morning picked for a devotion. He was describing exactly what we see today. And he said it best, he said, when he was building Noah this ark, the ark and the building thereof was not drawing him closer to God. It was not making him somehow more holy or more righteous, but it was obedience to what God had declared. And in that obedience was salvation. How does that pertain to the passage that we see today? Well, when it's talking about the where, this wilderness, we as Christians, we as the, the church of the New Testament must realize that we are in a spiritual wilderness. And coming to this building and having an assembly... And having dinner and going out and visiting and inviting people to church and saying prayers like Noah building the ark does nothing for our spiritual man. It is out of obedience that we do these things because we are loving Christ. Now why are we loving Christ? That is the picture of the the reverse of the warning there. The warning is to not believe in what we have in coming and doing these things is that we are proving that we in fact do believe. And so we have the praise and the warning and then we see the where, this wilderness. Now this, if you look at it, could have said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by testing me. It almost would sound the same, right? If it just said when. But I would submit to you that it doesn't say when because it is very important aspect of Christianity for this to say where instead of when. And you'll see why. It doesn't say when, as in when your fathers tried me by testing me, because when wouldn't nail down any specific period of time. He said, when they provoke me, as in the day of trial, where? Because when wouldn't have 
told the people exactly where. And I think also there's another reason why. Because this shows us it's not a when the people of God were unbelieving, were speaking out against Him, were sinning against God. It was saying where because at every moment in every season man since Adam has done this exact thing. When does not nail down the time, but where does? Every man has been guilty of this very sin of unbelief. It's a sin directly against God, never always believing. And of course, belief is the aim of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not the aim of the gospel. Your heavenly treasures apart from Christ are not the aim of the gospel, but that you know Christ and that you worship him because of who he is. That is the the means and the method and the outcome of what the gospel is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring glory to God. And it, it in its own self, in its own right, is the first fruit of its applicable reception to the once unregenerate man. Belief is that fruit that we have faith in God and faith in Christ. And now because of that, we are made regenerate. And it really changes us. Instead, the text, instead of saying when, it says where to indicate the reality that they were in this wilderness. And it was a wilderness because the place was unpredictable. The place was scary. The place could be fatal for the people. And it was a place cut off from everything, from any provision. And it was inescapable. The where is really describing the circumstance of every man since Adam. When wouldn't do it. If we said when, it would be always. But where is telling us where we're at as people. That we are in a wilderness. We're in a scary place. We're in a, a fatal place. We're in a place that is inescapable if it were not for the great God of the Bible. God of heaven and earth. This is the dilemma of every person in the flesh. That we are in the wilderness. Much like these people. There's truly in this wilderness, though, no need to worry, right? Because God had given provision from the very beginning. And He gave provision, I believe, in two distinct ways. First, divinely from heaven by creation so these people are in the wilderness they're cut off they have access to nothing it's an inescapable place it said that they were wandering they had no way out and what we're going to see is a picture of christ coming to deliver his people from the wilderness as we see god delivering these people from the wilderness and what we see first is the provision uh divinely given from heaven in creation exodus chapter 16 then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. 
When they came to Marah, they could not drink from the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where they were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So we have God providing in this wilderness first divinely from heaven by creation something to drink he turned this bitter water into sweet and then we have a divine god again providing for his people omnisciently before the exodus for he knew what the people needed chapter 12 of exodus verse 31 then he summoned moses and aaron by night and said up go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel also had done as Moses had told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord has given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And so what we have there is that picture of God omnisciently, divinely providing for his people before they ever made it to the wilderness. And this should be drawing the picture of the gospel for you in your mind as we speak that we are a people that cannot provide for ourselves. God is providing and what God has already done before we ever knew that he was God was provide for us omnisciently by the power of the sovereign God in heaven. He knows what we need and he's given it to us. I want you to look again to Exodus chapter 16. I'm so glad that we received that gift this morning so now I don't feel bad about giving you what you pay for. We're going to have a little extra today. You'll have to excuse me, but this is, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. The Lord provides manna here in chapter 16. Consider this. They set out from Elam and all the congregations of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. 
On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? And then what happens next? Moses says this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening. And the bread to fill in the morning for the Lord. Here's your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to all the congregation, the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord that he has heard your grumbling. It came about as Moses, as Aaron, excuse me, spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying at twilight, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. We know what happened. People were not happy with what they had. And they missed the whole point that God was providing before they ever left and during their stay in the wilderness and that He would be there long after they passed. And we miss it. And what we don't see is the sin that is pictured for us in this text. The sin is groaning against the Lord when all He does is provide. Think about it. If you've ever complained about anything, you are an Israelite. We're all guilty. One fact What we see is God saying, you just do what I tell you to and I'll take care of all your needs. And we have a big problem with that. What do we do? We complain. We sin. We don't listen when His Word is being preached. We don't care when His Word is being proclaimed. We just shrug it off because we've got next Sunday. We've got next Wednesday night. I can pray later. But the ironic thing is God is telling us the great God of heaven who's done all of these things, who's made you regenerate by the power of His gospel and His Son Jesus Christ, and you're not willing to do what He says. But you go to work. And you'll work all week in hopes that your boss will pay you at the end of the week. Boy, is that misplaced trust or what? And I'll even put it to you this way, that the boss wouldn't pay you if it wasn't for the Lord. Wouldn't be anything honorable about Him. Wouldn't be anything trustworthy of Him. He wouldn't have anything to pay you with if it weren't for the Lord. And what God is saying is, listen, my people, as you are walking through this wilderness, as you are sinning against me, my eye and my ear is with you. And my heart is toward you. And all of his attributes begin to shine through sin. And all of his grace and his mercy is shining down upon his people in spite the fact that they are grumbling against him.
It says, where your fathers tried me by testing me. Who are these fathers? These fathers are the people that they came from, right? Their ancestors. Fathers, grandfathers, their families. Earthly lineage. And it wasn't just in flesh, but it is, in fact, in spirit as well. This is why you're corrupt. And this is why you're tainted. There again, a picture of the gospel, right? Showing us just how far deeply it goes. Just how far deeply rooted sin is. It didn't start just with you today. No, you were born sinning. And you were born sinning because your mother was born sinning. And because her father and her mother were born sinning. And it just keeps on going. And so what we have here is this sense that we're being described. That you come from these fathers of sinful flesh. So what else can you, can you be? What else can yourself be but sinful? This is where you get your sin. This is where you get your strife. This is where you obtain your attitude, your characteristics, and your failing religion. That's the purpose behind the text. He was showing them that your fathers, the place where you get everything that you do in the flesh, they have corrupted you. You have corrupted yourself because you're following man. And that's exactly what Jesus did not want. He did not want men following the man Jesus, but he wanted people to follow Jesus the Christ. Not for the bread, not for the fishes, not for the healing, but because he was God. So we see here this appeal where because it's not a win because men are always sinning against God, but where because he wants to point out the wilderness of sin, how desolate it is to be in a sinful place and in a sinful state without the trust and faith and belief in Jesus the Christ. This is the picture that is being put forth where your fathers like you were given to their tradition, this failing religion, these rituals, these ceremonies, this pride. It has indeed bred a self-righteous self-destruction. God is saying, herein lies your rebellion. It lies with these fathers and with theirs and with their fathers all the way back to the first Adam and Eve. In fact, he's saying your unbelief, the very thing that we're dealing with, because first we see praise and then we see dealing with unbelief. What we see is this is unbelief goes back further than them to the very beginning. Man hasn't changed. And that's really the point. You can have all the ceremonies, all the traditions. You can have father and mother that gave the church, the money to build the church building. You can have a great benevolent heart to give things to people, but it won't change the man. Only God can do that. He's saying, you are still sinful in the sight of me 
if it is not for this Jesus who is the Christ. If it is not for true belief. The truth is that their sin got them into trouble. It got them into trouble and it got them into captivity. We know that. There's no, there's no disputing that. Not even a cult would dis- discriminate and say that, no, this is not the Christ of the Bible. They would say that, of course, sin got people in trouble. Sin sent Israel into captivity. And then what do we see? That God's grace gets them out. They were a groaning people. Why would he deliver them? Sin gets them into trouble. God's grace gets them out. And then when they get to the Red Sea, their sin keeps them at bay saying, where will we go? We're surrounded. There's no one to, there's nowhere to go. And their, their sin of unbelief again is showing its head. And then God's grace makes a path on dry land through the sea, right? Then their sin in the wilderness leaves them hungry and thirsty. God's grace fed them and quenched their thirst. The message of the gospel this far is the same as it has always been. Your sin is walking you down the path of torment and destruction, growing weary and weak and dying. The destination known as hell. And God's grace is leading you to heaven through the shed blood and righteousness of the shepherd who is leading the way, Jesus Christ. And not only is he simply leading you away from sin and destruction, away from hell towards heaven, but this Christ as a shepherd, as a good shepherd, is stopping to graze you in the greenest pastures of his word along the way. So that when you reach the gate, that you'll have trouble getting in because you'll be so fed by the Spirit. That you'll be so filled with Christ. And he stops to feed you in green pastures. And he stops to quench your thirst amongst still living water. He says, they tried me by testing me. They tempted me, is what it says. They tested me to see if I was able and willing to provide. There again, the gospel of Jesus Christ, able and willing to provide his own, received him not. And yet he is still willing and able to go to the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Ignorant. Unbelieving. Yet they saw my works for 40 years. This is part that may strike a chord. They saw, they heard, they read, they felt, they tasted. And repentance was far from them. And this may be the case with some today. That you have seen for 40 years. That you have tasted of the Lord's goodness For 60 years, for 70 years, that you have felt the radiance of his mercy and his glory in his son, Jesus Christ, as it has rained down upon your life, giving you every single blessing, every single breath, everything that you've ever need. Because guess what? You're here this morning and you're not in the grave. 
And repentance may be far. This is a reality that the world needs to remember. That seeing doesn't mean believing. That tasting doesn't mean that you're filled. And that hearing doesn't mean that you've listened. The only thing that we have is that if Jesus Christ comes in, we'll be saved. We'll be changed. Repentance is a fruit of that. And we can be like these people for 40 years and we can see it. We can go to church and we can talk about it. But the reality is that that the blood of Christ is not applied to such a degree that it changes the man from the inside out. Then there is no hope. And there still remains a level of unbelief. Tempted in unbelief. Because practicing belief doesn't tempt the Almighty God. Practicing doesn't tempt the Almighty God. It's a very strange thing to understand that in unbelief we're tempted. And what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to put God on trial to say, just show me that you're a God. And He's already shown us for 40 years. In unbelief, we're tempting. But the truth is that in this belief, there is no temptation of God. Why? Because we don't need to know what God can do to prove that He is God. But we already are, are sure, with a certain hope, the Bible says, that He is God and that He is Christ, God, Christ being God, being born of the virgin, suffering, going to the cross, dying, rising, and ascending into heaven. And because we know that, we don't have to have proof from God other than anything that we've already been given in His Word to know that He is the God of the Bible. Unbelief tempts, and true belief does not. And that's just the facts. Why were the people wandering? Because they said they believed, but they didn't. They always wanted to see if God was still with them. If you have to know if God is still with you, and if you have to ask the question, the reality is that He maybe was never with you. And if you ask the question, it also says that you do not know who He is. Because He says, I will never leave. Lo, I am with you always. There's no doubt about it. They tested His grace and His mercy. They tested His patience. And He didn't have to. But in that, they proved that God is truthful. That God is dependable. And of course, long-suffering toward usward. Those to whom the blood has been applied. And if that is true, they have proved that God is altogether good. Our God is good. He's the best. The reality is that it has been said 
and it speaks of Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament, there is none like you, O Lord. Doesn't need to be tried, doesn't need to be tested. He is the righteous one of heaven. God was proving, although he had no reason to, he had no obligation, he was proving that he could relieve man. And the the interesting thing is that, that these people, these grumbling people that represent you and I before Christ, and sometimes you and I with Christ, they represented a people who were hungering and wanted to just know if God can relieve the temporal things without giving a second thought to the fact that God has already relieved us of the worst thing that we could have. Sin and death. The wages of sin being that death. Not just pain, not just hunger, not just thirsting. What God is saying is, you're begging when you get a little bit hungry for me to relieve you of hunger and thirst. But what I am telling you, I want to relieve you of sin. Why don't you come to me for that? And we don't. The blood of Christ. This drink, he says himself, is relieving us of our suffering and sin. Let's look at a few passages about that. Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. People groaning for a little bit of suffering, wanting God to prove what He could relieve us of. And here's the description of those sufferings. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What God is saying in that passage in Revelation is that yes, I can relieve your pain. I can relieve your mourning. I can relieve your crying, all of that. And you want it now. But what I'm telling you is that if you believe in my son, Jesus Christ, at salvation, when you die and go into the everlasting life that he is providing, those things will be gone. The problem is, just like every man, he always wants it right now. God's saying, just wait. Just wait. Because if you'll follow him, I promise I'll take these things away. And they won't be coming back like they will if I take them away now. He may take away your pain this week. Right, Miss Cheryl? And it may be back next week. But when you believe in Christ and you trust in Christ and this temporal life is over, He'll take away everything. And He starts with sin. He starts with death. There ain't no sin and there ain't no death. There ain't no curse in heaven. No pain. No mourning. 1 Peter chapter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What is the the way that we escape? What God is telling us this morning is there is no escape, lest it be in his son, Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus, apostle, high priest, Christ. You want to escape? Believe in Jesus. You'll be able to endure these other minor sufferings. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. God must have cared for these people. Groaning against them after he delivered them from their captors. After he had parted the sea and they walked on dry land and their enemies drowned and destroyed and he fed them and he watered them they knew the way by day and by night he was with them all the way and they still did not trust him and yet he's long suffering and he showed that he cares Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. That was all the things everybody wanted without believing in Jesus. Without trusting in God. (coughs) Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And here's the reality. In that passage in verse 9, We said it wasn't a when, it was a where, because man was always sinning, so when wouldn't nail it down. Where would tell us exactly what place they were in this wilderness. But here in this passage that I just read, it does say when. Here is this Christ, and we can rejoice in him when his glory is revealed. When his glory is revealed, there is coming a day. That's the message of the gospel. That we have certain hope that Christ is coming for his people. You won't skate by just trusting in your fathers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. These are those green pastures. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
What was God doing for the people in the wilderness? He was causing them to be reminded at every turn that He is sovereign and He is in control and that He will provide and that He will deliver. And the picture of that in the gospel is Jesus Christ in this wilderness coming, giving us everything that we need until we meet that moment, the Christ in His glory. And that we see what is unseen in Christ. And that we see not with human eyes, but with spiritual eyes. And with new hearts of flesh, that Jesus Christ alone is able to deliver from this wilderness. The truth for these people, they thought that they were dying. They thought that they were wondering. But what they were doing in every trial and every circumstance when they had no other place to go but to moan and grumble and then take it before the Lord, they were being reminded of who He is and what He has done. And He will continue until we are completely submissive to His Word and to His precepts, to His commandments. And He wants us not in groaning to come before Him, but in trust. Not asking Him to do so that we know that He is God, but asking because He is God and we know that He can do. That is what the Lord is expecting. Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my work for 40 years. Saw it, but didn't trust it. This morning, as we look at Hebrews chapter 3, the penman is saying from chapter 1 until now, consider this Jesus Christ. He saved you already. And that was the message. That was God was providing for these people before they ever left. He has saved you already. He went to the cross. And you admitted that He did these things. There's that confession. Remember the Jesus. Remember the apostle. Remember the high priest of our confession. And somewhere along the way, you started groaning and you forgot who he was. And as you look, don't look like the people of Israel. Don't wait 40 years to be reminded that I am in control. But walk with me and I'll take care. Jesus said that he would make light this yoke that he places, his yoke, this burden that he gives us nothing, that he doesn't provide for our in handling that and conquering over that. The people of Christ are to be reminded at every chance, and even this morning, we don't have to try him. He's already been tried. He's already been true. He's You'll believe your neighbor about a car or about a product and you'll go out and buy it. Very little proof with just a word. And here we have the word of God saying that Christ is altogether sufficient. What will we do with that? Will we moan and groan? Will we wait for 40 years to test them over and over again 
Or will we take His Word, hide it in our hearts, bind it around our necks, and trust in Him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before You once again, Lord, we're just thankful. Lord, in so many ways we have it much easier. Lord, no one in this room has wandered in a desert. No one here knows, God, what it's like to truly be captive as a slave. Lord, to do without. Lord, you've given your people the simplest gospel, the simplest good news ever that we can do nothing, but Christ has done everything. Lord, our prayer today is just that we would heed such a word, Lord, and be so thankful for it. The Messiah has come, God, and that because of your grace, we have not missed it. We can see him in this word, Lord, and that we can trust him because he is not a mere man, but he is God, and he is good. His blood is precious and cleansing and pure. Lord, it's exactly what we need. We just ask that uh, for those who would hear the truth of Christ today, Lord, that they would be convicted by their sin, convicted by your word, convicted, Lord, all of us by our grumbling and our complaining. You have been nothing but good, God. And we just ignore it and look over it and just act like it. that's the way things are supposed to be. The reality, Lord, is that we deserve death and without Jesus Christ, we would have it. We would taste it and it would sting. We're just thankful in your grace and your mercy you have provided a better way. We just ask that you would enable us to live by it. Be true to it, Lord. You would give us a greater love today for Christ than we had uh, when we walked in here this morning, Lord, and that you would give us a greater love for him tomorrow and that that would spill out of our lives, Lord, into our neighbors uh, in hopes that uh, by the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they would be one, Lord, to him. We thank you, Lord, and ask that you would uh, bless the, the lunch today. And the reading of your word, Lord, and that you would receive our worship and uh, that you would be pleased by us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.